Hi everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we'll be covering our highlights from AACR 2023, which we covered in Orlando, Florida. We'll be discussing a range of exciting research topics, from a novel personalised mRNA vaccine for melanoma to RAF dimer inhibitors in solid tumours. To begin, we have Jeffrey Weber from the NYU Langone Perlmutter Cancer Center in New York, who presents findings from the Keynote 942 trial of an mRNA-based personalized cancer vaccine with pembrolizumab in melanoma. So the presentation that I uh, gave at the ACR meeting uh, this past Sunday described the efficacy and safety results of a phase two randomized study of the mRNA vaccine 4157 from Moderna with pembrolizumab versus pembrolizumab alone. This was a moderate-sized phase two randomized study of 157 patients in which there was a two-to-one randomization between vaccine with pembrolizumab versus pembrolizumab alone. Patients received standard pembrolizumab at 200 milligrams every three weeks intravenously for one year, total of 18 doses in the control arm or they received the same pembrolizumab treatment with a messenger RNA vaccine 4157 that was given starting usually after the third or fourth dose, given for nine doses at one milligram intramuscularly. And then, of course, the patient would finish the pembrolizumab alone to complete the one year of therapy in both arms. The messenger RNA vaccine was a customized vaccine because it had up to 34 neoantigen sequences within it. And uh, 91% of patients had all 34, and the remaining 9% had between 9 and 32 neoantigen sequences within their vaccine. This was a single-strand RNA encapsulated vaccine. And in this study, the toxicity data showed that there was very little difference in either the serious adverse events or the grade three, four immune-related adverse events between the groups. Of course, as you can imagine, in the combination group, there were more side effects that related to the injection of the vaccine, chiefly redness and pain at the injection site, similar to what we'd see with a COVID mRNA vaccine, uh, feverishness, chills, lethargy, and some fatigue, as well as some muscle aches, usually lasting between 24 and 48 hours. The efficacy results, however, were quite impressive in that there was, over time, with two years of follow-up in each group, a hazard ratio of 0.56 for the primary endpoint of recurrence-free survival, reflecting a 44% reduction in the risk of relapse over time during that two-year follow-up period. At the landmark of 18 months, there was a difference between 78% recurrence-free survival in the combination arm and 62% in the control arm, reflecting a 16 percentage point absolute difference, which is quite impressive. There are distant metastasis-free survival due to come out that'll be presented within the next six weeks at the ASCO meeting. There are correlative marker studies that were presented as part of a poster, which show that whether you had a high or a low tumor mutational burden, arbitrarily assigned as 10 mutations per megabase that the hazard ratio for benefit didn't really change, you still benefited from the combination versus the single agent. And if you had PDL1 high or low, PDL1 high meaning more than 1% versus 1% or less, that you still had benefit 
with hazard ratios that were quite favorable, whether it would be PD-1 high or PD-1 low. So whatever the prognostic groups within the uh, stage three and four resected patients, there was clear benefit for the combination versus single-agent pembrolizumab. So the conclusion was within the limitations of a moderate size phase two randomized trial, there was evidence of benefit for the combination of an mRNA vaccine with pembrolizumab, where that mRNA vaccine encoded up to 34 neoantigens compared to the reference control arm of pembrolizumab alone, which is, of course, FDA approved in the U.S. and approved by many regulatory agencies for resected stage three melanoma around the world. Next up, with Mansi Saxena from the ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, who talks on a phase one trial assessing PGV001, a new antigen vaccine. So I'll explain the pipeline so that we can then go into how the trial worked. The PGV pipeline is pretty simple in its design. First, the patients are enrolled. We extract tumor and blood samples from the patients. DNA and RNA is extracted from these samples and sent for sequencing. The sequencing data is then fed into the OpenVax platform, which is Mount Sinai's homegrown neoantigen prediction platform, and it's an open source platform as well. Uh, OpenVax helps select the top 10 neoantigen candidates, which are then uh, synthesized into synthetic long peptides. These peptides are assembled into a vaccine at the vaccine and cell therapy core, also at Mount Sinai, and then administered to the patients in a prime boost format over 10 vaccines spanning a period of 27 to 28 weeks. Um, as an adjuvant, each vaccine also includes poly-ICLC. And throughout the course of the vaccine, starting from pretreatment to follow-up, we collect blood at regular intervals to perform Im immune monitoring experiments. So um, as per protocol, 20 patients were enrolled in the trial. We made the vaccines for 15 patients, and 13 patients were eventually dosed. After 13 patients, there were no serious adverse events, so our trial met the primary criteria of safety and also feasibility. Next, we wanted to look at the immunogenicity of the vaccine in the patients. So first, we looked at the inflammation induced throughout the course of the trial in the peripheral blood. For that, we performed O-link analysis on peripheral blood using their immuno-oncology panel. And interestingly, we found that each patient had a very unique inflammatory signature, and it didn't significantly change, minor blips here or there, didn't significantly change during the course of the entire trial. Next, we wanted to look at the cellular immunity in these patients to each individual neoantigen in the vaccine. So to look for the de novo immune responses, we performed an ex vivo Elispot interferon gamma assay. And that assay showed that all, the, all of the 13 patients responded to at least one, if not several, neoantigens in their vaccine. So that was very promising and helped us meet our immunogenicity criteria. But then to delve even deeper, into the quality of the immune responses induced by the vaccine, we looked at specific CD4 and CD8 T cell responses to either the long epitopes or the minimal epitopes. To do that, we took bulk PBMCs uh, and cultured them in presence of uh, specific epitopes, along with adjuvants and cytokines for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, the T cells were re-stimulated with our epitope of interest and then analyzed by intracellular staining and flow cytometry. And the data was actually very interesting. 
Uh, seven out of eight patients that we have evaluated so far had a robust CD4 dominant polyfunctional response to several new epitopes in the vaccines. And this has been reported by other neoantigen trials as well, where while the vaccines are carefully designed to elicit a CD8 response, they do um, report a much higher CD4 immunogenicity instead. Having said that, though we had a very strong CD4 response, most of the patients also had a polyfunctional CD8 T-cell response to several minimal epitopes, which was very promising. So we know now that our prediction algorithm does work. We are able to, uh, and we are constantly tweaking the algorithm. The data from this trial will also go to educate our algorithm further. That we did, we did, uh, we were able to manufacture uh, new antigen, personalized new antigen vaccines, administer it to the patients in a timely fashion, and derive an immune response from the vaccine. And remarkably, one of the patients that prior to the trial had progressed on immunotherapy, received all 10 vaccines. As soon as they finished the last vaccine, their disease unfortunately recurred. And then they went on to receive uh, monotherapy pembrolizumab, to which they had a remarkable and clinically significant response and remained disease-free and alive today, which would indicate that our vaccine somehow sensitized the patient to uh, other immunotherapies. And that was very promising. And we are looking forward to delving into that mechanism a little bit deeper. And then also just looking at the T cell responses more qualitatively, identifying the cell states through the course of the trial, and finally validating that the T cell responses we are seeing are actually tumor specific and are, are cytolytic when they will be co-cultured with the tumor cells. Following on with John Michael Bryan from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, who provides an overview of nivolumab with the standard of care in the management of grade group five prostate cancer. This is a phase two trial, a single center, single arm, in which we um, added uh, Nevo to the radiation-based antidote care therapy for high and very high-risk prostate cancer patients. Um, and the way that we did this is we dosed it um, with uh, four cycles in total of Nevo. Um, two cycles were given before each of the two fractions of the brachytherapy, and we did that um, upfront before the external beam component. Um, and uh, what drove the, um, the hypothesis uh, for, for the study was that um, by, by doing um, the radiation combination with the Nevo in this way, uh, we could try to avoid um, you know, some of the um, lymphocyte um, um, destruction that we get with external beam. Um, and additionally, try to, um, using this ablative dose um, brachytherapy, um, in combination with the Nevo, we could uh, break down that immunosuppressive um, uh, tumoral microenvironment in order to try to get a response in these patients that have um, historically or you know, traditionally without this, um, without kind of what we've seen, um, have very uh, immunologically cold tumors and would normally not um, have any benefit from um, any kind of a immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So one of the exciting things that we saw with this trial was that when, com when we compared it to historical controls, um, you know, patients with met all the same inclusion and exclusion criteria and all treated at the same center um, with the same therapy, we noticed that there was an 88% reduction in the risk of two-year two metastatic disease for patients that had Nevo added on um, as part of their uh, trimodality therapy. Um, which was a fantastic, you know, obviously clinically significant um, outcome of the trial. But um, one of the um, 
very exciting um, discoveries, uh, results of the study, was that we looked at the uh, genomic profiles of these tumors as well. And part of the study was we would take biopsies at the time of uh, brachytherapy for each fraction and then also a month afterwards, and we were able to identify some genomic signatures that were associated with early pathologic response. Um, Sting um, um, and PEP are just a number of these, and we also there was a number of immunologic signatures also that were associated. Um, however, there was one signature in particular um, which was associated with early pathologic response, major pathologic response, which was the rickets immunosuppression genomic signature. And what was uh, really um, exciting about this particular signature is it also predicted for early radiographic complete response too. Um, and it was the only signature that we're able to predict for both pathologic and radiographic um, response like it did. So we're excited, not just at the clinical outcomes of the study, but um, um, some being able to identify a signature that we can hopefully use in the future to identify patients that would benefit the most um, from the addition of immunotherapy for the treatment of their locally advanced prostate cancer. Finally, with Alison Schramm from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, who talks on BGB3245, a novel RAF dime inhibitor in solid tumors. Yeah, so on behalf of the co-investigators, I presented the dose escalation component of the phase one clinical trial of BGB3245 in patients with advanced solid tumors. Um, as some background, the MAP kinase pathway is among the most commonly altered pathways in cancer. BRAF mutations can be classified into three different groups on the basis of how they signal. Class one BRAF mutations signal as monomers. Um, this is typified by BRAF V600E and accounts for greater than 90% of BRAF alterations in cancer. And they have, they have high kinase activity, um, signal as monomers, and feedback suppress RAS. Non-V600E mutations can be subclassified into class two or class three. Class two mutations have high kinase activity or intermediate kinase activity and signal as constitutively active dimers and feedback suppress RAS. Class three alterations have kinase, low kinase activity or are kinase dead um, and they signal as RAS dependent heterodimers. Um, so first-generation BRAF inhibitors, including bemurafenib, dibrafenib, and encorafenib, uh, have been approved by regulatory agencies for the treatment of BRAF V600 mutant cancer, so class one alterations. Um, however, they have several limitations. So um, they do not effectively treat class two or class three alterations. BRAF fusion, splice isoforms, or N-terminal deletions that signal as dimers. Additionally, they're ineffective in RAS-mutated tumors. Um, also, they cause paradoxical activation in, in wild-type cells, and that leads to keratoacanthomas and cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. Furthermore, patients with BRFE600E mutant cancers that are treated with first-generation inhibitors can develop acquired resistance, and that can be mediated by dimer-mediated mechanisms that um, could potentially be amenable to different types of therapies. Uh, so BGB3245 is the, the drug that we discussed, um, and that is a dimer, a BRAF dimer inhibitor that inhibits all RAF isoforms with strong potency. Um, it is, in preclinical models, effective in class one, two, and three alterations, and um, has the potential to be effective in BRAF fusions, splice isoforms, and N-terminal deletions. Um, this, this drug, uh, Cause, should not cause paradoxical pathway activation at, at therapeutically relevant exposures. 
So we discussed the dose escalation trial. That was a, this was a phase one dose escalation that follow, followed a modified toxicity probability interval two design, starting with a dose level of five milligrams once daily. The primary endpoints were safety and tolerability, the determination of the maximum tolerated dose and the recommended phase two dose, and secondary endpoints included uh, anti-tumor activity and pharmacokinetics. Six dose levels were explored and we identified 40 milligrams once daily as the, ma the maximum tolerated dose. In terms of the toxicity, so the toxicity profile was consistent with that of other MAP kinase inhibitors. The most common side effects included rash, fever, thrombocytopenia, and ALT elevation. Generally, these were low-grade and manageable. 12% of patients required a dose reduction. Uh, in terms of the efficacy, uh, so the, the well, I should say the patient population. Um, so in, in the patient population, we, it, we described 42 patients uh, as of the data cut, including nine that were ongoing. Uh, these patients were heavily pretreated with a prior median line of three prior systemic therapies, um, and many different disease types were included, most commonly melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, and colorectal cancer, although there were many different diseases. Um, we treated RAS mutations, KRAS, NRAS, and HRAS mutations, and BRAF alterations, most commonly BRAF E600, However, class two alterations in BRAF fusions were included as well. Um, overall, there was a response rate of 18, a confirmed overall response rate of 18%, with an additional 24% of patients having stable disease beyond 24 weeks. Uh, the, the disease control rate was 79%. Confirmed responses were seen in a variety of different tumor types and genomic alterations, including BRF E600E mutant cancers that had progressed on prior BRF and MEK inhibitors in melanoma, cholangiocarcinoma, and in low-grade serous ovarian cancer. Patients with NRAS mutant melanoma had confirmed responses, and patients with class BRAF class II alterations as well. Um, the median time on treatment was 154 days, and many patients continued treatment beyond a year. So um, in summary, uh, the dose escalation of BGB3245 identified 40 milligrams once daily as the maximum tolerated dose. In general, the safety was tolerable and consistent with other MAP kinase inhibitors, and there was preliminary signs of efficacy observed in several different populations, importantly, many populations for which there is no currently approved targeted therapy and there is significant unmet need. Thank you to our speakers and to you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple, Podbean and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field. Music